So we're going to start uh, just two weeks of a little series on Christmas. I've entitled it, The Birth of the Theanthropic Person. Well, why? Why did I name it that? Well, when you're thinking of theology, theology is nothing more than looking at your Bible at the same topic in all of the verses. As you do that, you understand that Jesus is the theanthropic person. He is the God-man. And it helps us to understand and for it to be meaningful, even when we use some of these terms. Now, uh, I, you know, I... I was going to entitle it The Birth of the God-Man. That would have been fine. We talk of that and use that expression. But I didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea, so I thought, well, yeah, let's go with the anthropic. And um, it, it's, a, it's a little technical, but it helps us understand who that babe in the manger really was, both God and man. But what, why do this at Christmas time? Well, because it's more than just a story about a baby in a manger. It indeed is a real event, and it's in regard to the birth of the God-man. It's shown in Scripture, and it's shown in Scripture this way, and that's what I want to do. I want to look at some of these, um, these verses that we usually associate with Christmas You'll see them on cards. Uh, you'll hear them in, in Christmas programs, um, both Old Testament and New Testament. And they all have that in common. They all speak of the deity and the humanity of Christ. If you go into the Old Testament, you see the prophecies that are foretold about his birth. You see the God-man described. You see the God-man described in the New Testament when both Matthew and Luke uh, give the accounts concerning his birth. And you start to realize, why, why is that so important that the Bible wants to tell us that? Because that is the basis for salvation, who he is and what he did. He is the only and the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful man because he is the God-man. He is the theanthropic person. So when we celebrate Christmas, we don't want to lose that. We want to realize who we are worshiping and serving. Now, this week, we're just going to be dealing with the deity of Christ, the theo part, theos. But next week, we'll talk about the humanity. Well, with that, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, the more we learn from the Bible and the more we learn about you and the more we learn about salvation and even the more we learn about us, Father, we grow. We grow in our spirituality. But not only that, Lord, we grow in maturity in our lives. And so, Father, that's what I pray is a result of us reading these things in Scripture, explaining these things from Scripture, 
And Father, as we celebrate Christmas, Lord, I, I, I pray that we, we of all people have the understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, what was his purpose for coming, and so we know why he was born in a manger. Father, we just ask you now to give us your wisdom, teach us from the scriptures, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's first of all look at the meaning of the theanthropic person. And then I do want to look at the views, some of the erroneous views down through history. One of the things that's very interesting is that, you know, coming to a Bible-believing church, a New Testament church at this point, and looking at our doctrinal statement and theology, and many of you have been in Bible churches, we know that Jesus is the God-man, fully God and perfect humanity. But that wasn't always the way it was viewed. There were a lot of times that false teachers came in and tried to present false views. And some of them are even around today. So this is very pertinent that we understand who Christ is. And so we're going to look at the erroneous views, then clarify it. But then I want to look at the deity of Christ, the deity of the theanthropic person from several scriptures, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. And then we'll be looking at the same scriptures next week and others to look at the humanity of Christ. Well, with that, let's, let's first talk about the meaning of it. Why the $64,000 word? Well, that's a good question, but you know, I think of when, when you're studying the Bible and you're studying theology, so you have a topic and you look at all the verses on that topic, you come to an understanding of it and it's sometimes helpful to have a title to put it together. Prime example is the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible, but we use the Trinity because we've studied the Bible. We know that we understand what the Trinity is. He is one God in essence and subsists in three persons. Now, that's maybe as far as we can really go in our finite minds, but we call that the Trinity. Well, here we call this, we call the Lord Jesus Christ the theanthropic person. Now, interesting, the first usage of this was from one of the, they called the church fathers in around the third century of origin. So the origin for the term is from origin. And he was the first one to coin the phrase God-man. So it's not, it's not the, the phrase is not used in the Bible, but it is biblical. It, it's fine to understand it that way. Uh, even the Westminster Confession uses the term God-man. And, and we've, we've heard the, that mentioned here at this, at this church many, many times, God-man, because it's a, it's a perfect understanding of it. So it was written in Greek, and it was, he was called, not the God-man, that's what it means, but he was called the theanthropic person, or the Greek word theanthropos. Now, theo or theos means God. In fact, the study of God is theology, theos, the study of theology. Anthropos, as you might imagine, means man. So anthropology is the study of man. So origin in trying to describe 
This one who on the one hand is fully and completely and forever God, but now also man, humanity, fully man, perfect humanity, he described him as the anthropos, the, the anthropic person or the God-man. One writes this, at a point in time, the eternal son of God added humanity to himself. I think that's a good way of describing it here. Uh, it, it will help us when we look at some of the erroneous views and then the proper view. That he added humanity. He didn't stop being deity. He added humanity to himself. Simultaneously becoming God and man. Both creator and creature. The unique the anthropic person. Now, one of the reasons why I did not entitle it the God-man, though it would have been fully acceptable and fully acceptable here, is sometimes you hear in mythology about a God-person or a God-man. This is in no way to be confused with mythology. This doesn't resemble their mythological characters known as demigods and uh, one, one of their parents was divine and one of their parents was human. Um, and so they were part divine themselves and then part human themselves. This is in no way the same as what we're talking about. And they would be such mythological characters such as Hercules, uh, Perseus, Achilles, and others. This is not a mythology. This is indeed the truth about a person. It's very interesting. Many times you have these eternal truths about who the Son of God is or members of the Trinity, and you'll see how Satan will use copycat expressions in the world of mythology, make-believe, or whatever, but that's not what we're doing here. We want to give a proper understanding of that one in the manger. Let me just go just a little bit further, and, and it's somewhat theological, somewhat technical, but I think it's helpful. Uh, you, you've heard me say this before. When I, when I refer to Christ, I always refer to him as fully God and perfect humanity because he didn't become less of God. He's not 50-50, as you might say was about Hercules. Uh, he was indeed fully God, always God, you can't, you, can't be, you can't become God. You either are God eternally or not. You're either the creator or the creature. Well, he's fully God, and I always say he's perfect humanity, meaning that he is as human as human can be, but without sin. That's, we'll talk about that more next week, but that's the only way that he could be the perfect mediator with those two realities. And it's also explained a little bit further and a little bit detailed, just in case you're, you're wondering, if, if you read anything in theology or if you read an article, you may come across these things, and I want to be one of the ones that helps you understand them if you come across them again. It's further explained that at Christ's incarnation, now incarnation itself is a word that means in, in, 
incarnation, carne, flesh, when Christ took on humanity, when he became flesh, the birth of Christ. So that, that's really what we're talking about here. It, it is the idea that at his incarnation, he possessed two natures, one divine, one human. They were both united. Those natures are united in one person. We'll talk a little bit about it. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in it because I want to get to these verses, but I want us to understand uh, the proper view of understanding this. So some of these false views are going to be, well, he was 50-50. He was a mixture. Or some of these are going to be, well, he was divine but not human. Some of those are going to say he was human but not divine. And, and uh, some will say that he was two persons. And what we understand from the scriptures and good men down through the ages, theologians, we believe that he has two natures, divine and human, in one person. One writes this, the two natures of Christ are inseparably united. Without mixture or loss of separate identity, he remains forever the God-man, fully God and fully man. Two distinct natures in one person forever. He will, from, from the moment of his birth, he would always be the God-man. Even in heaven, he is the, theanthrop uh, the, the, the theanthropic person. Charles Ryrie writes, Christ incarnate in the flesh, being full deity and perfect humanity, united without mixture, change, division, or separation in one person forever. Now, as I said, I, I, I believe that we see these things in the scriptures. But I also know that when you do a study of Christology, the study of Christ, one of the things that you will discuss is Christ being both God and man and what were some of the views that combated Christianity. And so I just want to go through them quickly. There's a lot that could be said, and I'm one who says a lot about things that can be said, uh, but I want to try not to do that. I want to look at these erroneous views really quickly. Um, and, and the first view is what they call doceticism. Now, if you see by the little circle, they believed in his deity, but they did not believe in his humanity. Well, then he can't be the mediator then. He can't die on the cross for our sins. He can't be sinless then if he's not both divine and human. We must be talking about someone human or someone divine. Now, this came out in the first century by the false teacher Marcion, and it comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means seems to be or appear. So he was God, but he only appeared as human, but he wasn't. Well, that, actually, we find out in 1 John chapter 4, these kinds of things were circulating, and John answers that already. And what is interesting, because sometimes you might be going through the book of 1 John, scratching your head when you read this verse, and you go, what in the world is he talking about? This will explain it. 
He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here, here are some of them. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And I know the first time you read that as a believer, you go, I don't understand. I mean, isn't that obvious? Well, it wasn't because you had all of these false teachings. And some of them were brought about by the uh, false religion called Gnosticism, which is just crazy in and of itself. And then he says, in every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. So it's very interesting. It is pertinent. It is pertinent to who he is. The second one is Ebionism. And as you might imagine, well, I don't know if they counteracted it, but they said, no, 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 he's human, but he's not divine. They denied the deity of Christ. And it, it gets a little uh, crazy as you talk about it. Sometimes in some of these that you have the divine spirit who comes upon the human, the human Jesus, until the point of the cross, and then the divine spirit, he's out of there. Uh, you, you have some of these things that go on with these explanations. This is Ebionism. The next one is Arianism, and we have Arianism around today. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, Mormons, they do not believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in his humanity, but they don't believe in his deity. So again, it is pertinent. In fact, in fact, it says in the Gospels that these things have been written that you may know two things. That Jesus is the Christ, the one who came, there's his humanity, the Son of God, there's his deity, and that by believing you have life in his name. Well, this is exactly the opposite. So they denied the deity of Jesus. Uh, one of the reasons was because of the term the only begotten Son. Well, if he's begotten, he must have a beginning. The problem is that's not exactly what that word means, and we shouldn't associate it with that. The word begotten is monogenes, and it means a unique son. It, it can refer to birth, but it's his one and only unique son. It can refer to birth if it's talking about Abraham in, in regard to Isaac, but Isaac was his begotten son, only begotten son, even though he had other children, meaning that Isaac was special. Isaac was special because of Isaac's mother and the completion of that promise. Well, what is the idea then about uh, monogenes, begotten? One writes, despite the claims of false teachers through the centuries and even today, monogenes, only begotten, does not imply that Jesus was created by God and thus not eternal. The term does not refer to a person's origin, but describes him as unique, the only one of a kind. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, 
uh, quotes and says, today you have begotten me. This verse is quoted about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quoted about the Lord Jesus Christ's birth, but it's also quoted in regard to his resurrection. Wait a second, what's going on here? You see, the word isn't the meaning for his origin. Now, when, when he was born, there is a sense in which his ministry began as the God-man. And in that sense, he was begotten. And when he rose from the dead, he was begotten of God in the sense that now he has completed salvation and completed the purpose of that ministry. So you see, it doesn't necessarily mean that. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, that God has fulfilled this prophecy promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son today I have begotten you so they're erroneous in that and and if you were to look at all of the scriptures that talk about Jesus's deity you would come to that one difficult passage you would be erroneous if you say well I'm throwing all those out just to make my doctrine over this. We've been explaining this for several weeks now, even in our Sunday school class. You don't take the difficult one and develop your entire theology from it. That is how error starts. You take the, in many cases, the many, but not always, but the many, and the simple teaching. Like, for instance, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's what you take as your doctrine. You go down to verse 14, which is really emblematic of his birth. And the word, that's Jesus Christ, became flesh, his incarnation, and dwelt among us. And by the way, it's my challenge that at the end of these two sermons that we will have a deep understanding of what it means for Emmanuel, God, to be with us. And he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And some manuscripts say begotten God. Well, God can't be begotten, but if he's one of a kind, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one of the members of the Trinity that took on humanity. In that sense, he is the unique one. He is the begotten. Anyway, we, we really don't have a struggle with that here because we take the, the mainstay teaching of the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to see that today. The next one is Apollinarianism. And basically, I, I'm just going to say he, they believe in his deity, but not his humanity. They start messing with the spirit, soul, and body with his humanity. And they take out his human spirit. So they remove the separation of the two natures. Um, and they tamper with it. One writes this. It was not that the human nature provided Christ's body while the divine nature consisted of soul and spirit. The humanity was complete and included both material and immaterial aspects. Talking about human, his humanity. On the cross, he said, 
into your hands I commit my spirit. But we have to keep it two natures in one person. And that's where this starts to go downhill in Nestorianism. Nestorianism divided Christ into two persons, one for each nature. That's the wrong way to look at it. And then Eutychianism, well, they said, no, 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 he is divine and human, but he's a mixture. He's a 50-50 solution of it. So this is what they claim. And so you wonder why sometimes, why in the world do we have to define it with all of these terms? Because there's false teaching out there that we have to correct. We have to say it distinctly. And it always seems as if when a definition is created according to what the Bible teaches, it's not much longer. And some of these false denominations and cults, they'll come up with a definition closer to our definition. Well, now we got to come up with a, another definition. This is why we say we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Because we just used to say faith in Christ. Well, some of the denominations have faith in Christ is doing good deeds. And you know you can't be saved by, by works. And yet that's what it is. So it ends up being faith alone, not works, in Christ alone, and in nothing or in no one else. Well, okay, theology class just about over. What is the biblical view? How should we understand? Well, you might have guessed it. Orthodoxy that the church has held, that theologians have held down through time. You think of Luther, you think of Calvin, you think of all of these guys. It's one person with two natures, fully divine and perfect human and perfect human nature. Why it's perfect? It's because he's without sin. And this is the understanding of it. I'll just throw out one more out there. And this, this union is called the hypostatic union. All right. So there, I threw it out. Um, what is the clarification? Well, there's many people that have clarified it. But in uh, 451, the Council of Chalcedon had had enough. And they said, here it is. And they came up with what they believed, according to theologians, uh, Bible uh, saved individuals. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to read the excerpts that are pertaining to what we're talking about. They wrote, the Son of God... And our Lord Jesus Christ is to be confessed as one and the same person. That he is perfect in Godhead or deity and perfect in manhood. And here's the phrase, you've probably heard it, very God and very man. He must be confessed to be in two natures, unconfusedly, immutably, means unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably, without the distinction of nature's being taken away by such union, but being preserved and being united in one person. Basically saying one person, two natures. He is the theanthropic person. He is the God-man. And that is what Christmas is about. And let me show you. 
I want to now talk about several of the verses, prophecies that are equated with Christmas. The first one is Micah 5, verse 2. Would you turn there in your Bibles? And this is the one that Lee read this morning. Micah 5, verse 2. Let's read it. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, as you're going through this, the first thing you see and what we hear about and see it mentioned in the New Testament is that this is referring to the, pro, the, the prophecy of where the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And of course he was and it was fulfilled and uh, it's recorded in the New Testament. There's a lot of other things going on here. Some of these I'm going to wait a little bit next week till we get into this and, and talk a little bit about his humanity and also his ministry. But I do want you to look at the very end. Even though it's said, one from you will go. It was a prophecy talking about the future. It says, his goings forth are from, are from eternity. There, he will come forth, but his goings forth are from eternity. Notice it says his goings forth are from long ago. Could have just stopped it there, but there's going to be those who are going to question that. From the days of eternity. Now, if you were to say from the days of King Ahab, you would have known he lived in those days. But if you say he's from the days of eternity, that means he's eternal. That means from eternity. And In fact, someone translated this uh, from the Septuagint, from the beginning, even from eternity. And, and that's what it means, even though the word days is in there in the Septuagint. Well, let's stop here for a second. We are talking about the eternality of Christ. And when we use the attribute eternality, we're talking, and we've, done, we've talked about this before, we're talking about the attribute of God that he is eternal. It means he has no beginning and he has no end. You can't say God has a beginning. You can't say Jesus Christ is both God and had a beginning. That's why the word begotten just doesn't work. That's why it's understood in its sense of uniqueness. You are either God or you are not. You are either creator or you are a creature, except in one exception, and that would be the God-man. But this whole idea of him being eternal is taught in the New Testament. How about the one that we just read a moment ago? In the beginning was the word. Well, that just says in the beginning. Yeah. And that's what it says of God, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. It doesn't mean that he had a beginning. It just means in the beginning, as far as it's been revealed to us, and before that, he was eternal. And he still is eternal. And he always will be eternal. In the beginning, 
was the word. And in the Greek, that is in the imperfect tense, which means continuous action in the past. It couldn't be written any other way. So in the beginning was the word. Of course, the word is Christ. And the word was with God. They had this fellowship, this, this relationship. It would be part of the Trinity. And then it says clearly, and the word was God. If you translate it, and some, and some cults do, the word was a God, you are wrong. You are incorrect. The word was God. It's, it's so simple. Just give me one verse that shows that Jesus is God. Boom, there it is. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, that means he was God. That's the Greek way of saying it. He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to go after equality with God. He didn't have to jockey for it. He didn't have to be challenged to go get it. He was God, God the Son. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And it also says he created all things, and there was nothing that was created that he did not create. Well, he didn't create himself, but he created all things, so he was the eternal creator. And in the book of Revelation, we've pointed this out when we studied the book of Revelation. In the very beginning, it talks about the Alpha and Omega, and I believe it's speaking of the Father in the very beginning of Revelation. By the end of the book of Revelation, it's fully revealed. And by the way, that's what Revelation is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation 22, 13, where Jesus is speaking, I am the Alpha and and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If Jesus Christ is not God, that was heresy. But he is God, and it's absolutely true. There is no heresy in the scripture. I mean, from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ or the prophets or the apostles. There is now, they may talk about someone's false belief, but the Bible's not full of a lot of that. The Bible is full of just truth and even the truth about error or a lie. But this is absolutely true. He is the beginning and the end, and he had no beginning and he had no end. So I know we concentrate on Bethlehem, Ephrathah, as we should. There were two Bethlehems. This one is the one that's just south of Jerusalem. This is the, the major one, even though it was a little one, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Um, this is the one it's talking about. This is the one, if you go over to Israel, this is where you will go to see the supposed birthplace of Christ. Maybe, may not be, uh, you know, but, but he was born in Bethlehem. That we know for sure. It's going to talk about the one who will go forth and be a ruler. So we even see the millennium is mentioned there. But what we're focusing on is his goings, his life, his existence was from long ago, from the days of eternity. He is the eternal divine God-man. 
Now, the next scripture I want to look at is another one that's very common to us. And that is from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So let's turn in our Bibles to that one. And, and I think perhaps some, I know, I know some of these were read by some of the children at our Christmas program and maybe even memorized too. So good for you. Good for you. All right, so the first one talks about the birthplace of the God-man and his goings forth from eternity. This one's going to talk about the gift of the God-man. The gift of the God-man. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Just going to read the, just the first two lines. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. Now, what's interesting, there's a difference between a child and a son, and there is a difference between born and give, given. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the first pastor of Grace Bible Church, John Ward, explained this. So, in his humanity, he would be the child who was born to us. But the fact that he is the son of God, God's son, God the son, couldn't be born because he always existed. He had to be given. And so he was given to us. And we see these two here. And both of these have to be in there. Both of these have to be correct in order for us to have salvation. And the father gave the son. And the son came came willingly as well. But how about John 3:16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and unique son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, what he did on the cross for their sin, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I, I do see that difference here between a child born and a son given. And I do believe that it's there on purpose. Because as you read the rest of the verse, I think the implication in some of these descriptions is also of the deity. So it, it, again, it's interesting. These are verses that we hear during Christmas time, but do we really hear them at Christmas time? It goes on to say this. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, that's talking, I believe, about the millennium. It's interesting. You know, again, when the Bible talks about the birth of Christ, his incarnation, these things, being born, born of a virgin, it's not necessarily how we celebrate it. And about, you know, we have all of these things, uh, you know, we hand out presents and and. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that. We get together with the family, and there's definitely nothing wrong with that. And then we eat, and I'm telling you, dogmatically, there's nothing wrong with that. But the scriptures don't quite view it that way. He came so we could die on the cross. He came so we could fill the prophecies and sit on the throne of David forever in the millennium. So this is what we see with scripture. That's what Isaiah was prophesying. And then it says, and his name will be called. And let me just go through these quickly because we are running out of time. 
wonderful counselor, and this is probably these probably should go together. Now, where do you get the deity in that? Well, first of all, the term wonderful. When you look that up in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, you will find scriptures that that word is ascribed to God. The deeds that he did were wonderful. These are the things that we see. It says, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. Or how about Psalm 139? I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, divinely made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. So the word wonderful is the idea many times ascribed to God. He's the counselor. Now it's talking about in the millennium where he, where he will be the judge and he will counsel. But we know God's wonderful counsel from the word of God. It's truth. It's the only source of truth other than the Lord Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. And no man coming to the Father but through him. Also, too, the next thing it says is mighty God. Well, I don't know how you would get around this, but it has to be referring to his deity. Even if mighty in the context might talk about the second coming when he defeated all of his enemies and Israel's enemies and then established the millennial kingdom like a mighty warrior, except it says the mighty God. It's referring to to his deity. So this child that was born to us was more than just a child. He was the mighty God, the son of God that was given. Now look at the next one, eternal father. Well, let's look at father first. Now this is not saying that he is the father. It's not confusing us when we think of the Trinity, the father, son, and the Holy Spirit. But what it does mean is that in the millennium, as he is reigning, he is king, he gives wonderful counsel, he judges, he will be fatherly, I believe. He will be fatherly in the millennium. Meaning that he's more than just a judge, more than just a king. There will be that personal relationship. But make no mistake, did you catch it? He's the eternal father. Eternally, he's eternally the one who will be fatherly in the millennium. And that is it. And then, of course, the Prince of Peace. Boy, if that isn't a reason to share Christ with people during Christmas time, he's the Prince of Peace. Do you want peace with God? That can only come through Jesus Christ and trusting him as your Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. When we trust him, he becomes our savior and he saves us. He regenerates us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We're sealed for all eternity and we have peace with God and then also leading to the peace of God. Well, next we have the name of the God-man. And we actually see this mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And this is found in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. We know this verse. We usually use this verse to um, defend the virgin birth 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God was his father, not Joseph. And true, it is. And even Matthew defines that for us. But I want you to see this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child in its truest sense and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. And of course, Matthew one twenty three says, which translated means God with us. Now quickly, many times when you see prophecies, there's a double reference. First of all, the prophecy as it pertains in the context. And if you've gone through our class in the book of Kings, you know exactly where that happens. It happens during the time of King Ahaz. He was having nations coming against him to destroy Judah. He was not a good king, but God said to him, I will protect Judah. In spite of you, I will protect Judah. Give me a sign and I'll give me any sign you want and I'll prove it to you. And he gives no sign, not because he was so uh, sanctimonious, but because he wasn't sanctimonious. And so God gives him a sign. Okay, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now in that instance, what happened in Isaiah, we believe that it was a human woman who was a virgin until she had relations with a man and then gave birth to a son. It can't be supernatural back then. There can only be one supernatural, divinely acted virgin birth, and that was Christ. But it's a double reference. So here's kind of um, a, a foreshadow of it, but this is the reality, the reality of Christ. And what is the meaning of the call his name Emmanuel? It was Ahaz, and you see this son born. And it talks about him growing up a little bit. When you see that, you will also see the destruction of these other nations who are threatening you. And you will know God is with you. Emmanuel. But what about from what we're talking about? What about when we see this in Matthew and quoted in Matthew? It is talking about something far different. It is a literal virgin birth. It is the birth of the Son of God. And his name literally is Emmanuel, God with us. He is literally God. And this, by the end of the second sermon, I, I want to really give us a real understanding of the meaning of God with us. That babe in the manger was God with us. That was the God-man, the theanthropic person. Hallelujah. Now our salvation can be obtained through his work on the cross. Next, we have the purpose of the God-man. So we, we, we see this, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. These are all verses. In fact, some time ago, we went through the prophecies 
of the birth of Christ. So we looked through all of these from the aspect of them being prophecies and the fulfillment of it. And, and that's just as true today as it was then. But we're, we're focusing in on something different. We're focusing in on the deity of Christ before we focus in on the humanity of the theanthropic person. In Matthew chapter 1, we see an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. And in verse 20, it says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And that probably pertains more of, to the birth of Christ and the humanity of Christ. So we'll talk about that next week. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And we say, all right, where are you going with this? Why does that show his deity? And how does it show his purpose? Well, the name Jesus is the version of the Hebrew Joshua. And the Hebrew word Yahashua means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh saves. He is called, even though there were a lot of other Jesuses and even Joshua's, this one was for real. This one is the reality of the name. Yahweh saves. It says, for, let me explain, he, no one else, no other Jesus, no other Joshua, this Jesus, the one in the womb of Mary, the one who has no human father, he will save his people from their sins. The one who would be born to Mary not only would testify of God's salvation, but would himself be that salvation. He would die on the cross. And of course, you would think the people, and in that context, probably referring to Israel, but it certainly has a broader sense in that even now, even us Gentiles who were once without hope and once without God now have been brought near and we are his people. If you trust Christ as your savior, you become his child and you become one of his people and God is your father and he is your God. This is the purpose for which he came. And the name, Jesus, is that divine name. That's his uh, deity. And, of course, his purpose, that he would save his people from their sins by dying on the cross for them. We think of several verses, do we not? The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men, which we must be saved. And as you're thinking of that, it has to be Christ. It has to be one who is theanthropic. It can't be one who is just that us, because God cannot die. 
So it has to be one who is anthropic, anthropos. But it can't be just any anthropos because he cannot have sin. And so there can only be one, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And finally, the last one is the identity of the God-man. And if you will, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And here's the angel talking with Mary. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And I'm focusing in on the title, Son of God. The title, Son of God, is equivalent in reference to Jesus as God the Son. He even argued with the Pharisees about that. And, and this is very well understood. It was understood by them. And when he claimed to be the son of the Father, God the Father, they wanted to kill him. And so we, we see this. Now, there's more in that, is in, in this verse, is it not? It is speaking to Mary about her virgin birth. It's speaking about how it will happen. It will happen through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We've been studying the Holy Spirit in Sunday school. I invite you to come on out to that. And because of that, because it, through the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit, the child will be holy. There will be no sin nature. But the point that he's making is, is that the reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God, or God the Son. And once again, he becomes the perfect mediator. Now, it's interesting in 1 Timothy, because we've already gone past this verse. It says, therefore, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And you might look at that verse and you might say, well, why didn't he mention the deity of Christ? Well, because he had been, because it's all over the place. Because even with these verses that are quoted with scripture, he is the God-man and it told about his birthplace. He was given as the son. He has the name Emmanuel, God with us as the God-man. His purpose is that he will save his people from their sins. Jehovah saves. And his identity is the son of God. But getting back to the mediator, that's, that's what the mediatorship is. We have one God who is holy and we have man. Now man is sinful. A sinful man can't die for another sinful man. It has to be a perfect man without sin. But he also has to be God because no man, human man, can be without sin. Only Christ, the holy child, is the son of God. Now, believers, we're called the sons of God. But it's different. Why? Because he is the only begotten son. The only unique 
one-of-a-kind son, even though we are sons of God. And so as we look at all of these here, we're, we're looking at the, yes, the theanthropic person, the God-man, but that was who had took up residence in that manger. No question about it. He had to be both fully God and perfect humanity in order to be the mediator to die for our sins. And this is what Christmas is all about. So when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the divine nature and the human nature and the purpose of one Jesus Christ in the, in the manger. We are celebrating the theanthropic God-man in the manger and what his purpose was for coming we will especially understand from the scriptures of prophecy of the Old Testament, very clear you saw that today, from even the New Testament, very clear that he was the God-man, and we're going to talk more about the man than the God part next week. Only the God-man can be the Redeemer. And so we've talked about that. So we are going to understand intimately what his divine name, Emmanuel, means, truly God with us, the God-man with us, the theanthropic person with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, Lord. And even though this was, I guess, what we would term theological, it, it was, it's biblical. This is what we understand from your scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, that at some point he came into the world and took on humanity so that he could die on the cross for our sins. Father, there is no greater gift that I can think of than the forgiveness of sins. We are sinners, Lord, and we struggle not only with sin, but even the effects of our sin. There's some people that believe that they're so sinful that they could never come to Christ. He could not forgive all of them. But he can. Because as the God-man, he did die for the sins of all men, and that is all sin. And so, Father, I pray anyone listening who doesn't know Christ, may you come, may, may they come, may you bring them to yourself, Lord, may they come and place their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they will have forgiveness of sins. But Father, as we celebrate Christmas, may we understand the person of Christ correctly, biblically, even theologically, as the theanthropic person. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.